Good morning, COV. Thank you for joining us as we continue our study of the book of Genesis called In the Beginning, Jesus. Today, we're talking about the very first human relationship. As last week, we talked about God creating man and giving him the responsibility to steward the earth. Relationships are the fabric of our society, and we are living in the most connected yet fractured time in any of our lifetimes. I don't think I need to unpack that too much, but what we have experienced over the past 11 months will probably be remembered as the least relationally connected the most of us have ever been. I know for me, it took me a while to adapt to the new normal of FaceTime, phone calls, and Zoom. But once I did, in some ways, it was really a really, really good alternative. And even more so, I could connect with people outside of this general area the same types of way that I connected with people that were around me. But a relationship that has flourished and has been tried at the same time more than any other one is my relationship with my bride and my spouse and my best friend, Aaron Riley. It has flourished in the ways that at the beginning we had much more time to focus on each other and we began to run together. And obviously we're excited about our fifth child that's due at the end of March. But we also have had to learn to communicate in person while having jobs and responsibilities at home with less time to get away from all our other responsibilities to just be able to communicate with one another. I don't bring that up to air out our dirty laundry. We're actually doing really great. But to make the mention that there are a bunch of new challenges that come with our relationships, and I would assume each of your relationships as well, not just with your spouse, but with your parents, your siblings, your children, and or your friends. And relationships were God's idea. The triune God of the cosmos made relationship within himself between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, while also making man and woman to have relationship with him and with each other. And these relationships are not just procreation uh, or an opportunity for procreation to take place, but we can help one another in God's commands and be refined through our relationship with one another. Any of you had any hard conversations in your life? I bet they had something to do with a relationship. And when we care about relationships, sometimes, at least for me, or most of the time, conversations have taken place that are hard. Because attempting to restore relationships or reconcile relationships or to not break a relationship is a really difficult thing to do because I'm selfish. But so are all of us. I want my own way, but so does everyone. And I want to be right, and I'd contend that we all want to be right, even though I may want to be more right than some because I'm writer. <laughs> Today, we will study the first human relationship before the fall, before temptation uh, came into uh, the idea of not doing what God says. God gives commands, and ever since he has given commands and we have the opportunity to reject his commands, we have done so. We have been in spiritual turmoil, and our lack of love for God has been obvious because instead of going towards him when he commands us to do things, a lot of us reject him and run away from him, even though he first loved us. And these relationships between the Trinity, between man and God, between woman and God, and man and woman are all so important to our understanding of the gospel because the gospel is that God made a way for us to be in relationship with him through Jesus's work, which as we will see in the next two weeks was required in order for our relationship to be restored with God after the fall. But God made the way. We didn't work our way to him. The work of Christ was God making his way to us. 
So let's start in verse 18 of Genesis 2. Here's what it says. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. These words that God spoke are so true, at least I believe them, because even though I am complete in Jesus spiritually and through the gift of the Holy Spirit indwelling in me, I don't know what my life would be like without my wife. Now, the balancing act is that as Tom Cruise said, You complete me. Which is honestly ridiculous because truly only Christ can complete us. But why do you think God said it's not good for man to be alone? In our day and age, it's comical and appropriate to say this, mostly because men in particular, especially husbands and fathers, are portrayed, at least in the media, as worthless people who really just need a woman. But then isn't it sexist to say the opposite? I don't totally get this, but what I do know is that Christ is our cornerstone. Christ is what every man, woman, and child need more than a significant other. But look at what God says he will do for man after he says it's not good for him to be alone. He says, I will make a helper suitable for him. It was not good for man to be on his own. Up until this point, everything God had made was good, and yet the absence of a helper for man was not good. I contend that even though much of what we learn about in this passage is about man and woman, I'd say that relationships of many kind are what are lacking in many of our lives. And we need male-female marriages in God's design to populate the earth, but we also experience closeness and the remedy to this lack of companionship in multiple types of relationships today. But God says he will make a helper suitable. Another word for suitable is appropriate, one that fits together for a purpose. Suitable, to fit well, a suit. Suit up! But this helper, oh, the helper, God before the fall gave man woman to suit him, a suitable helper. But ever since the fall, ever since we've sinned, man and woman have needed more than just each other as a helper. In our broken relationship with God, we have needed the helper, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. In John 14, 16 through 18, in New American Standard Translation, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the, wor the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The Holy Spirit the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord helps us eternally, spiritually, and relationally. The Spirit of God helps us eternally, spiritually, and relationally in our justification, our sanctification, and in our communication. And I've been wanting to teach about the need for the Holy Spirit for quite some time, but unless the passage lends itself to, to this, I tend to refrain. But here we go. Here's how the Holy Spirit is the most suitable helper eternally. He is the one who makes it so we can see Jesus for who he truly is. See, as Paul says this to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, he says, And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our problem, which is sin, and points out the solution, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing 
while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. The power of God is not the power of man. It isn't our doing anything that impresses either intellectually or even spiritually, but the work of the Spirit references and or points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In Romans 8, verse 11, Paul says, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. And the Spirit of the Lord He raises Jesus from the dead. For what? For our justification, as he says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. The Spirit of God helps us eternally as the deposit and the guarantee of our future inheritance as we read in Ephesians chapter 1, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. So again, we see the absolute gift that the Holy Spirit is for us eternally. Next, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit helps us spiritually. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 and 10, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things that God revealed to us by his Spirit. If faith without action is dead, as James, the half-brother of Jesus says, then how do we know what to put our faith-driven effort into unless we, by the Spirit of God, understand what God says in his word? Now, I'm going to slow down because I want us to hear this. This is a tough subject because I think within a community as large as we are, there are differing views on how to know what God means or to interpret his very scriptures. I'll save you all the big theological words, but how do we know what God intends? Do we just feel it? And whatever feels good, we do that and expect God to give us credit for obedience? Do we assume that every commentator that we read from, maybe in a study Bible, understood the scriptures perfectly as if they were infallible? Of course not. If we believe scripture interprets scripture, we hope to find confirmation of interpretations understanding of Scripture within other passages of the Bible. Context, authorship, audience, language, all of these things are tools, but once again, not infallible, just as much as your feelings may mislead you. But the more we read 
the more that we meditate on the scriptures, the more we obey rather than just commentate on, the more I'd contend that the scriptures to us become more alive. And our Christ-likeness is progressing. We start to look more like Jesus as we put into practice what God says in his word out of a motivation of understanding that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And our love for him is not out of a devout religion or a have to, but out of a spirit-indwelled relationship with God that leads us towards obedience. I'll say it this way, as I study scripture with many of you in this congregation, new things come to light, which sometimes is very exciting, but honestly, sometimes it's very humbling. As even during, as I was writing this sermon, I was attempting to find a passage that doesn't exist because I believe something that some other pastor had said at some point, and the more that I read, the more that I Googled, the more that I found out that that passage didn't exist to substantiate my belief about God. That's humbling. I'm a pastor. I should know this stuff. And so I and you, we need to be humble enough to realize we don't understand all of this. If we possess the Holy Spirit, he leads, he guides, he comforts, he convicts, but he also doesn't do all the work for us as if he would obey for us without us or just brings everything to mind without us ever putting in any effort to actually study the word. He's a helper. He doesn't do everything for us. So the spirit helps us eternally, spiritually, and as we'll see in a moment, he also helps us relationally. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. We're going to read a portion of the story. Here's what it says, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of, of Candace, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot. He heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And Philip asked, do you understand what you are reading? How can I, the eunuch said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news, the gospel about Jesus. And they traveled along the road. They came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What could stand in my way of being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. They both, they both, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. The Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, is involved in our conversations. He's involved in our connections with others. I know as a church, we often focus on sharing the hope that we have when asked. But I think we sometimes forget that the Holy Spirit is involved in our lives no matter what we're doing. So even if they don't ask, 
that doesn't mean that the Spirit might not be preparing you and them to have a conversation about the eternal hope that is found in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, the Helper, also helps us as we love and we serve other people. We can assume that as Christians, our job is to tell any and everyone about Jesus, but the Spirit also leads us to care for people in a way that makes Christ increase while we decrease. John 16, verses 7 through 9, Jesus says, But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people do not believe in me. These words probably didn't make that much sense to the disciples when Jesus said this to them. And if we're honest today, most of us don't believe these words today. Because we think it was better to walk with Jesus as a disciple than to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. But you and I, we live in a post-resurrection time where he has sent his spirit, the advocate, the helper, and we are better off than those of times of old because we have God with us and in us. The spirit never leaves us and always points us to Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as Jesus was about to ascend to heaven, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit, the advocate, the comforter, the helper has come so that not only would we have help, but to empower us in our relationship with God, to empower us with others inside the family of God, and to empower us with those who are yet to receive Christ. So I think I've spent this time and I've shown my work that the helper refers to the Holy Spirit after the fall. Not meaning your spouse is your Holy Spirit. Listen, you're not. And if you're trying to be the Holy Spirit for your spouse, you're committing blasphemy. So cut it out. Come on now, cut it out. (laughs) But as God in his design was pointing out in the first marriage between a man and a woman, they were what God intended for marriage to reflect Christ and his church. Verse 19, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Again, work was before the fall. And God gave the first man a job to name all the animals, and Adam did his job. Verse 20, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Adam did his job, but a suitable helper was not available. He bared this burden on his own, and none of the animals were it. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. God makes the suitable helper, not from the ground like man, but out of the man, from his rib. She, the first woman, as we will know as Eve, is created. Rib, or also could be translated to side. Verse 22, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. 
For those of us who have been to any weddings, usually, traditionally, the father walks the bride down the aisle and hands her to her new husband. And this is where that tradition originated, where the first father, God, hands the first daughter, Eve, to her new husband so that they can partner, serve, and be responsible for them as a household and as a home. Now, the idea of responsibility may be foreign to you especially if you've been more influenced by today's culture than God's word. But responsibility is something I think the Bible consistently speaks to. And we at COV take very, very seriously. Not that we do it perfect as if all our leaders, both in the church and in our respective households, do it well or right, but that we serve and lead with responsibility of the care and spiritual well-being of the people that the Lord has entrusted us in his church and in our families. In verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Adam, the first man, after his deep sleep, shares these words that woman is a part of him, that she was taken out of him. As we see and read in chapter one, verse 27 of Genesis, so God created mankind in his own image. This is known as a mago day. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. We, both man and woman, were created in the image of God. We are important to God over all the, more important than all the animals. We are image bearers of Yahweh. And when God brings us together, it is also to reflect the marriage of Jesus and his church. Marriage, it's a difficult subject for some. And since the fall, marriage has been a target of the deceiver to attempt to ridicule and wreck relationships, starting with the first marriage in Adam and Eve. I've had the real honor of doing premarital counseling, often with my wife, with other couples for many, many years now. I've performed many weddings for couples who are committed to Christ and to one another. And every time that my wife and I do premarital counseling for a couple together, we're reminded of our commitment to Christ and to one another. Here's what I mean. In that order, Christ and one another. Marriage, it's hard, but it wasn't our idea. It was God's idea. So when it gets harder to attempt to outdo your spouse in honor by laying down your life, it's not always for your spouse, it's for Christ. When two sinners come together, aligning their value, their aligning values must be more than just attraction or even affection for one another. It must be rooted in something much higher and much more powerful. And Christ, his work and love for his creation is what binds us. His Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, gives us the ability to love our spouse the way God intended. Not that we always do this right, but the thing especially that young couples don't, don't always take into account as they want to get married, when they begin their, their journey towards holy matrimony, is that when they commit to this other person, they're saying two things as Christians. First, that we as a couple reflect the gospel better together than we do apart or with someone else. That we as a couple reflect the gospel better together than we do apart or with someone else. Here's what I mean. Not just that you feel holier when you're with that person, but that you seek the Lord. You reconcile when disagreements arise with your spouse 
you reconcile things as Christ reconciles things. You outdo one another in honor. You lay down your life for your spouse who is the king's daughter or is the king's son. And you love the Lord God more with all of you because you embrace the gift of who your spouse is. That's one thing you say as you are a Christian getting married. But here's the other thing. It's that you believe that God has brought this person into your life to refine each of you through that other person. Meaning your sanctification, your spiritual growth, your refinement isn't a personal thing, but it's a relational thing. That God is going to use that other person in your life to refine you to look more like Jesus. Marriage is awesome, but it's hard all at the same time. But the commitment that you both make is a covenant with God and with one another. And it's not based on how your spouse treats you, but your trust in God who gifted you your spouse. Now, is there nuance? Of course. What if your spouse is abusive? What if your spouse is addicted to drugs and won't get off of this addiction or look for help? What if your spouse is a cheater? Or listen, This is not a blanket statement, but before the fall, marriage was, and it was good because God is good. And that hasn't changed. And since the fall, our perception has changed. And in marriage, those the Lord has gifted it to, you have a responsibility to take your covenant with God through this other person very seriously. But look at what Paul says to the church in Corinth in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. This is spoken in the context of addressing marriage and how to be intimate God's way. And then he says, I wish you were like I am. And most believe he was pointing out that he was single. Some argue and may be right to say that he was widowed or maybe even divorced, but I doubt that last one because of how religious he was, how much he wanted to keep the law because he thought it justified him before Christ came and saved him. The point is that marriage is not the end goal. Can I say that again? Marriage is not the end goal. Reflecting Christ in his gospel is. And in some cases, being single is the right way to do this. So your priorities, they're not diversified amongst your family. But for some, marriage is exactly what the Lord has planned for you, to glorify Him. The problem is we often force either one because we think we know better than God does. And as Pastor Mike has said before, sometimes we say we heard from God and it sounds a lot like us. So how do you know? I can't answer that in a sermon because every person is a little different, but I'll say this. Being open-handed with the answer may be the beginning of wisdom rather than telling God what you want and expecting God to provide that. Ironically, like everything in the Christian faith, we must come to our misunderstandings with humility and trust that God knows what he's talking about. Like we have said many times before, it's not that the Bible contradicts itself. It doesn't, but it contradicts us and we don't like that. So if our frustration is about God giving roles in the marriage household or church or our frustration with our marriage or our singleness or our situation, instead of assuming that we have all this stuff figured out, we could come to God and trust that his will, timing, and word are all on point rather 
than our will, impatience, and opinions are. Verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. The very first marriage arranged by God, man and woman, bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh, become one. And a a son no longer needs to put his parents as his main relationship, but now it's his bride because she is entrusted to him. And this relationship is sacred. It is holy. And listen to me, it is one of a kind. The intimacy within a marriage relationship is unlike any other relationship within this world, both emotionally and physically. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Since the fall, and what we will see next week, is shame and fear of being exposed after being caught in their sin. But marriage, as it was originally intended, was to be intimate and close and to feel no shame. Because by God's design, our commitment and our covenantal relationship with our spouse is one that we not only should not feel shame in, but be able to be exposed completely to that other person because they're a gift from the Lord. Marriage is a gift. And when Christ is at the center and the Holy Spirit is active, it makes every other relationship in our lives secondary. So church, how do you view creation? How do you view God creating man and woman in his image? How do you feel about God's design of responsibility and roles that he has said in the first two chapters of Genesis? Do you come to these things with a sense of pride that you know better than God? Or with the humility that even if it isn't what culture says or what you grew up with, that God may be right in his design and what he says in his word. Our relationships function more like God intends when we all come to our marriage and our parenting, being a son or a daughter, to our siblings, to our friendships, with the humility that says that the other person was created in God's image. And so they are valuable to God, even if they don't always act with humility themselves. So Church of the Valley, Christians, friends, be the modeler, be the example that doesn't attempt to force others to act a certain way, but that gives them an example that is grace-driven that they cannot forget about. If you've bowed down a knee to Jesus Christ, if you understand that you are dead and lost without Jesus, and you have by faith repented and trusted Jesus as your sole means of salvation, then you are empowered by the Helper, the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, and there is very little that you cannot do that reflects Christ. Because the Spirit of God and your obedience working together is exactly what happened as Christ walked this earth. Thanks for joining us today on this playlist or if you're in person at the watch party. We're going to have our takeaway call at 1130 to share what God stirred in us from this message. And I would ask if you're watching at home or if you're on the the lawn of the church that you would try to jump on that call to share what you heard because it'll be so cool to have people who watch this in different places be able to share what they experienced. And share on the takeaway call what stuck out and point to the gospel of Jesus Christ as your joy and encourage one another to put into practice what God is leading us to do differently. And also we do an offering. And so if you're in person on the watch party, we're gonna have a box out. You can drop in a, a offering that way if you choose to, or you can, if you're at home, you can mail a check 
or either way you can go online and you can do it through our website. But we would ask that you would give not out of compulsion, but out of worship because you trust that everything that you have is God's anyway. So let me pray for us. And uh, for those who are in person, the worship team is going to come up and they're going to start to get set up while I pray. And for those who are watching on the playlist, you're going to get to see our worship team lead in a pre-recorded song. But my hope is that in this time, that you would just allow God's word, Genesis 2, as we've just finished Genesis 2, and we're about to jump into the fall next week, would you allow what you've learned today to wash over you? And would you ask God to convict you and show you what he wants you to do differently from what you heard today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you were at work. I thank you that you love your people and that you sent your son to die while we were still sinners at the perfect time. You died in our place, Jesus. And he rose from the dead and you made a way so we could know you and personally follow you. And you've given us more gifts than we could ever understand from your spirit to your word, to marriage, to friendships, and so many other things. And so God, I acknowledge that the breath in my lungs today is because you've willed it and you are good. And I thank you, Lord. And I pray that I would treat my relationships with my wife and my children, with the other elders and the staff and my friends and the people I'm yet to, to know as you introduce them to me. God, I pray that I would reflect your son in all of those relationships. And I thank you that your spirit empowers me to do that. I pray, God, that whatever offering is, is taken today or given, that you would use it for your glory. And I pray more men, women, and children would come to know you in a personal way and want to chase after you and obey you. And God, I thank you that all is yours, and yet you are so glorious and generous to gift us what we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.